Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. My name is Kellen McFall, and I'm the host of the New Books and Genocide Studies podcast, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. Every month or so, I interview the author of a new or recent book in genocide studies. Today, I'll be interviewing Christiane Garlach, author of the book Extremely Violent Societies, Mass Violence in the 20th Century World, published by Cambridge University Press. When I first received the book, I flipped it open, and I was immediately struck both by the depth and breadth of the research reflected in the endnotes. Garlock has an almost encyclopedic knowledge of the field. I learned a lot from this book about violence in Indonesia and in East Pakistan or Bangladesh, two regions of the world that are part of the genocide studies canon, but as yet are relatively understudied. Moreover, his discussion of counterinsurgency warfare in perhaps 20 countries in the Americas, Africa, and Asia, is all-encompassing. Garlach uses this immense knowledge to suggest that people who study genocide need to approach the subject in a different way, one that is broader, one that is more grounded in primary research, and one that uses the categories of ethnicity and race much more carefully. Whether you agree with this contention or not, it's a book that makes you think hard about your own ideas one of the highest compliments you can pay pay an author. I have no doubt that Garlick's book will be one of the most talked about books in the field for some time. I had a great time talking with him about it, and I'm sure you'll find the interview just as interesting. Here it is. Hi, Christian. How are you today? Hello. How are you doing? I am very well. Thank you very much. I should tell our listeners that today we have Christian Garlach, uh, author of a fascinating new book titled Extremely Violent Societies, Mass Violence in the 20th Century World. Uh, I thought it was extremely thought-provoking, um, and I think it's going to prompt quite a bit of discussion. Uh, it's got a provocative thesis and, um, and frankly, an encyclopedic knowledge of a variety of case studies. I was truly impressed by the kind of range of research the book contains. Uh, Christian, why don't we start uh, just by giving you a chance to say a little bit about uh, who you are and how you got to be that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, um, I am a history professor at the University of Bern, Switzerland. Uh, I was born in Germany. For a long time, I was a historian of Nazi Germany. And... Uh, that included research on some of uh, the most um, bloody um, events of uh, Nazi history, including uh, German occupation in Eastern Europe, the murder of Jews in uh, parts of this occupied territories of the Soviet Union, uh, by Germans and as well as in occupied Poland uh, and in German occupied Hungary. 
Then I moved on, um, got involved in a comparative study between aspects of uh, the persecution, murder of Jews, and the persecution of Armenians in the First World War. And that became one of the um, triggers for the book we are talking about. Um, I should perhaps add that I didn't stay in Germany, um, worked as a history professor in places such as Singapore uh, and uh, Pittsburgh, uh, Pennsylvania. And um, in part uh, connected with my personal experience, but also connected to other research interests that also included uh, the history of famine and so-called uh, development policy, the world food problem and so on. I got involved with global history. Um, and that also was important for the book we are talking about as it takes up case studies from different parts of the world and has is derived from a certain way of thinking uh, that global historians have to search for linkages between different parts of the world, but also to look at them comparatively. Yeah, I, I studied under Alan Byerson at Ohio State, and I remember talking with him Oh, a year or two ago, and him saying at one point in his career, he kind of faced a turning point about whether he was going to look at genocide professionally or whether he was going to look at other kind of military histories. And him saying that he 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 deliberately turned away from genocide studies, and and, and we'll talk later about some of the concerns you have with that label, but um, and, and at least partly because he didn't want to um, study something so grim. Is that something that you kind of thought seriously about when, when you moved from being a historian of Nazi Germany to this broader question, or did it just evolve? Um, it evolved. Um, I will not do the study of uh, mass murder and mass violence forever. Um, and I also have, as I said, other research interests. So in that sense, it's it's not exclusive that I'm dealing with uh, mass violence. So part of the premise of the book, um, and, and, and perhaps in answering this question, if, if it fits, you might say a little bit about how you decided to write this book at this time. But as I read the book, part of the book rep rests on the concerns you have about the way the study of mass violence, whether you call it genocide or ethnic cleansing or crimes against humanity or... Um, whatever label you use, and you discuss these in, in your book, uh, about your concerns about the way this study has, has emerged. Can you say something about the emergence of the field of genocide studies and how scholars have tried to address this? Um, well, um, I don't want to go in deep, uh, deeply into the histor historiography of uh, mm -hmm. genocide and political violence. It seems to me that genocide uh, is um, a certain concept, if I have problems, that's not only about a term. The concept evolved uh, since the 1940s 
uh, Rachel Lemkin. It was for some decades primarily shaped um, or filled with content applied by social scientists um, and legal scholars and has uh, recently also, the, the field has recently also been entered by um, uh, many historians. Uh, there are some uh, interesting uh, developments in that field, um, but uh, one problem with actually genocide studies is that uh, I think genocide scholars are in competition with other scholars in the in the study area of political violence or violence in general. Mm -hmm. um, and um, that competition is for um, academic careers, uh, book contracts, uh, TV uh, screening times, uh, and um, uh, finance uh, funding for, for research and other thing, and also for political influence. Um, so um, genocide is only one concept in the field among many, but uh, some genocide scholars, I think, try to, to become hegemonic. Um, for me, uh, although genocide studies has moved more uh, than uh, once, uh, at least up to the 1980s, perhaps 1990s, in the direction of um, becoming stronger empirically. Um, there are still some problems, and that those problems seem to me to have to do with this concept, which appears to me a bit too static. Uh, uh, normative, it is action-oriented, um, or being practical as action-oriented, uh, scholars applying it sometimes simplify things. Um, just to give the gist of my uh, concerns, I think uh, the concept of genocide is too focused on the state and too much concentrating on uh, intent. Um, yeah, but in any case, I try a somewhat different concept in order to put some different points of emphasis. Um, and um, But I'm happy to see all valuable insights generated by genocide studies as well as well as by other approaches in the fields, be it ethnic cleansing or um, political violence, whatever. It's, uh, it should be a positive competition. Um, you propose kind of an alternative approach to this, which you call the extremely violent society's approach. Um, what do you mean by that and what do you think how do you think that offers strengths to or opportunities to scholars? Okay. Um, well, the concept I derive, uh, I, I propose, is derived from uh, certain observations that came out of my research as well as of that 
of many others in recent years or perhaps in the last one or two decades. Um, there are basically three, three to four essential elements of an extremely violent society. One is the participatory character. So um, this goes a lot in the direction of uh, looking more at non-state actors and not only be um, concerned with uh, the state uh, or a government. Uh, then uh, it, um, I suggest the second um, like characteristic is the multi-causality of violence. So there are uh, diverse uh, motives for a diversity of actors uh, and maybe one more than one motive for one set of actors. Uh, in a certain case of mass violence. And the third is that it's usually not one a group that is attacked, but multiple groups that become victims of violence. Um, and that is also important as in genocide studies and a bit beyond uh, studies are often focusing on one group, like in isolation. Uh, from the other cases of violence, uh, the other um, uh, violent action uh, that was going on at about the same time. So, um, what can one do with it? And it's important to say that a bit unlike perhaps in genocide studies, where it's very important for colleagues to prove this or that was genocide or was not genocide, uh, it's of little value to say, oh, this was an extremely violent society, or this was not. Uh, it has little point. Uh, and the concept is rather um, meant as a point of departure and not an end point. So then one can try to investigate into the activities of non-state actors, their interaction their interaction with uh, state functionaries or other public uh, figures uh, and so on. Um, and uh, then one can look in the interaction between different motives and how that uh, played out in yeah, the dynamics of violence. I mean, uh, I found that the existence of these different motives is very important or the thrust uh, that often develops and the speed uh, in which uh, violent action is taken. Um, and the um, links between the persecutions of different groups, also the links between their responses, their ways of reacting or acting of these persecuted groups, uh, seems also to offer possibilities uh, that sometimes get lost in the research uh, that applies other concepts. Um, so to the extent that you, 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 you can create at least a tentative kind of explanation for the prevalence of mass violence in the 20th century, what, um, how do you try and explain that? Oh, well, that's uh, kind of a blanket question. Uh, we should perhaps Indeed. discuss this in a bit more detail. 
Um, it is true that there is something in the subtitle of my book about the 20th century, uh, but the question is how typical all this was for the 20th century as opposed to others uh, mm -hmm. earlier centuries. Um, if one looks for, well, sometimes there is not a clear distinction. The most distinctive element, I think, is that of the participatory character of violence. Uh, the uh, private interests uh, and so on have been present in cases of mass violence and persecution for centuries. However, I think this participation in the 20th century worked, or since the beginning of the 20th century, has worked in different ways. Uh, because of some, uh, um, because of the increase of uh, political participation in general, a uh, political participation even in states without uh, civil democracy, and that I think is uh, like what is 20th century, uh, what is most 20th century about. Now. So you start out um, with Indonesia and Armenia. Why, why Indonesia? Um, Indonesia, well, how did I pick my case studies? Um, I was looking for cases that have not yet been studied so much by specialists. Understudied cases where uh, there is somewhat a uh, somewhat sufficient um, source basis, as we historians say, uh, to do at least a mid-depth uh, mid depth study. I mean, we are talking about case studies between like 20 and 100 pages. Um, now, I, uh, these understudied cases have in common that usually the archives are not open or not completely open or they have not been open for long. Uh, so scholars have been going for uh, like a substitutional evidence, like uh, they were looking at sources like um, uh, observations by foreigners, uh, missionaries or diplomats, or um, yeah, some some. I mean, so they have looked at survivor reports. In some cases, there are not so many, like in Indonesia, and some other uh, like uh, evidence that can replace this. Um, now, this evidence often is translated in languages accessible to me, because um, for such a study with a uh, reach over many countries, um, it is essential to, to have such evidence. And um, so um, these are the understudied cases uh, the, that appeared uh, interesting to me. Uh, I could have chosen other cases, uh, but then um, in cases like Cambodia or Rwanda, I really would have needed to have 
the language mm -hmm. languages um, because uh, research so far has already been you know has reached a certain depth and I couldn't have added anything empirically uh, without languages. Um, I hope that in the cases that I studied, studied I could add something more empirically. I know I learned a lot. Um, and I have to say, I, I appreciate the, the caution you show. I, a number of cases where you basically suggest in the footnotes that this is as far as you can go, and without learning other languages, you can't make any broader conclusions than that. Um, Indonesian Armenia it, it support, at least as I read your argument, um, the claim about participation, about the variety of, 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 of motivations for the perpetrators and the variety of, um, in particular, the variety of different groups and the way they interacted. Uh, some of our listeners are familiar with what happens in Indonesia. Some are not. Can you just briefly say kind of what is the traditional narrative of what happens in Indonesia in the mid-60s? And then talk about how your research, what, what, what you have, uh, what you suggest about the complexities of, of how violence emerged in that society. Okay. Uh, Indonesia, mid-1960s, this is about the um, murder... Uh, the violent death of perhaps about half a million people, uh, leftists targeted by what I call a broad coalition for violence between different uh, state and non-state actors. Um, the, um, um, the, the scholarly picture so far has um, become somehow divided Either uh, scholars see this as having been uh, staged and done by the Indonesian military, so state violence uh, uh, carried out by a certain um, arm of the, uh, of, uh, the government of Indonesia. Um, and um, there is another, um, there's another group of uh, scholars and observers who said, well, this was really uh, like a chaotic violence mainly uh, created, generated by non-state actors out of control and enraged, uh, enraged by uh, uh, alleged wrongdoings of uh, Indonesian communists. Um, what my study tries uh, to show is that one really needs to uh, combine the two and see all actors and how they worked together. Um, so um, uh, the, the chapter in a large, to a large degree is about the interaction between non-state actors and military actors to uh, um, find uh, arrest, uh, in part in turn, or in part slaughter uh, alleged or real communists in Indonesia. Um, it is about something um, like a group of, um, a coalition of 
political parties, nine political parties, and about 40 mass organizations that teamed up uh, to um, per persecute uh, communists and then later to bring down the old regime of uh, nationalist, leftist uh, President Sukarno and install a new regime that would become the Suharto military dictatorship that would preserve um, so, um, that has to be taken into account if one reads this as a coalition in which not only the military and certain mass organizations and political parties, but also many other non-state actors, um, uh, in an unorganized way, uh, teaming up, uh, on free will without clear structures, uh, somewhere in the evening and going on the hunt for communists. Um, if one takes that into account, then one uh, can explain the uh, um, of events much better. One can also explain why, like, violent straight, uh, like, not only leftists were persecuted, but also, as was already fairly known, um, the um, Chinese ethnic minority. Uh, but also especially uh, trans migrants uh, within Indonesia and um, people who were deviating in terms of their religious beliefs. Um, and this model, uh, I would say that uh, different um, intensity and overlap of political will between these many state and non-state actors explain why they were uh, these other groups were hit by violence in uh, in other ways and in a differing intensity, but about at the same time as the leftists and communists. Um, also, by this coalition and by the erosion of this uh, short-term coalition, one ex can explain why Violence against leftists was relatively short, and most of Indonesian communists, um, by far the most, could survive. And why this happened at a certain point in time, because important forces within that coalition for violence, important political parties, and important figures in the military, other things became uh, and, and gained a priority, and therefore uh, the intensity of the persecution. Lessons and also for the unorganized uh, um, people in this coalition for violence, you can, uh, you know, you can link the violence to certain socioeconomic uh, developments, especially uh, the lack of land, especially um, the mass poverty and famine that kind of correlates with the intensity of violence. And so if you have uh, famine or especially uh, great landlessness, that, uh, that is the same areas where the violence was especially intense. And where before the conflicts between the political left and the political right have been uh, very intense. These are some of the uh, highlights yeah, I, I'm interviewing Leanne Fuji. Right? I think that's how you pronounce her name. Um, sometime in the next week or so, in her book about Rwanda, 
make some of the same points. I was struck by just kind of a, a small point you made in the book, a small example about villages who sometimes traded victims as a way not to have to slaughter neighbors. And I don't know how typical this was. Um, this isn't obviously a, a focal point of your discussion, but I was really struck by the ways in which our kind of traditional understandings of hatred as motivation for killing um, are not necessarily always as as true as we would like to think they are. And this comes through in the Armenian chapter as well, where, where, where you basically suggest that the desire to um, gain wealth and resources was one of the main motivations for at least ordinary people and also the government in um, in encouraging or participating in the deportation or violence against uh, our Armenians. Well, what? if that was a question, was it? Well, not a very well-phrased one, but <laughs> I guess what I'm asking is, what I see, is it correct to read this section of the book as suggesting that we need to expand significantly our understanding of causes for violence um, beyond the, what I see as kind of a traditional ethnic or not ethnic, but a group based or a prejudicial based explanation. Yes, and I could only do so much in the book. As I said, these are mid-depth studies. Uh, I didn't have enough sources in most uh, cases mm -hmm. to really even be able to do a local study, let alone to really actually carry it out. Uh, and um, local studies uh, or even regional studies might be, uh, you know, um, may have more of a capacity uh, to really uh, go into detail and link the private uh, uh, pri private levels um, with uh, levels of collective group affiliation or ascription to, of belonging to uh, certain groups. So more in the direction of what well, Stathis Calibas has suggested, but perhaps himself also only to a degree, degree really carried out uh, with regard, for example, to the Greek Civil War of the late 1940s. Um, and perhaps I should add that uh, the book that I wrote uh, kind of focuses in part on economic interests and economic material factors um, that is because these factors uh, usually have been understudied or not fully integrated in interpretations of the uh, of the events in question. Uh, but one could also do this, um, like uh, use the approach I took more or less and um, trace other important uh, like factors that move people to uh, per persecute uh, neighbors or people in their vicinity. Uh, for example, in the Armenian case, I was really looking for one um, set of motives that is economic uh, greed and what this did, especially for non-state actors to participate. Uh, in the persecution and really uh, not only participate, that's too 
Uh, that's not strong enough to impart, bring it about because many of the victims, uh, the Armenian victims, uh, died on these uh, almost never-ending marches through uh, deserts over mountains and so on in 1915, and that because they had less and less resources uh, for uh, feeding themselves, uh, buying something to drink, uh, means of transportation, whatever, uh, and uh, less and less clothing that was also important, and that because they were um, often one person several times uh, robbed by not only state officials but also by non-state officials. But I could have also spoken about, let's say, uh, like a certain religious zeal, uh, a religious set of motivations in uh, in persecuting Armenians, and that would also have uh, led to another uh, a bit uh, different point of emphasis. I mentioned this, uh, but uh, it would have been stronger if one would have talked about religion. Uh, that is the differences of opinion among the population, uh, because there were also uh, quite a few priests and others, uh, like Muslim priests and uh, people, um, Islamic people, uh, who on religious grounds refused to take part in violence or even took measures to protect uh, Armenians. Uh, and that, uh, let's uh, also um, talk about this for just a second. If one talks about participation in mass violence, uh, one also comes to the point of uh, non-participation or like uh, deviating behavior, resistance against violence. There are conflict in these societies about whether to apply violence, how much, which, uh, and to which point against whom. Uh, that's also visible in the uh, Indonesian case. Strikingly, uh, in the Indonesian case, the president of the country, several govern, uh, governors of provinces, and several uh, ministers of the federal government um, were against the mass murder of communists. Also in the military, uh, in the Air Force especially, uh, uh, and also in uh, some units of the uh, ground forces, there were uh, there was a position against the mass murder against leftists, and there were leftist leanings. That means, uh, I think that's one overarching um, result of my book, that it is not enough just to look at the state or the government. That is not a monopoly. Rather, uh, the, uh, there are conflicts, severe and sometimes violent conflicts, about this mass violence against uh, certain groups within the state apparatus and often also within militaries. Yeah, I, am I right in reading the book to suggest that one of the things you think we need to do, which makes perfect sense to me, is to rethink the kind of categories we've created of perpetrators and bystanders and victims? Yes. Um, I try not, as, as, as I uh, already tried to, to signal mm -hmm. with what I just said, 
first of mm -hmm. all, uh, somebody who was actually in an official function has to be uh, in a, the, the, the actions of such a person have to be uh, uh, analyzed uh, and examined not only as somebody who carries out government policies, uh, those government policies uh, may also be evolving uh, and changing, but they are also not carried effect by like uh, uh, machineries that just uh, carry out mindlessly what uh, was ordered. Uh, rather, these people have their own interests. They also have their own uh, attitudes uh, and their own little mm, uh, impulses to uh, co-shape policies. Uh, that makes them important actors by themselves, and you can't just look at them as like cogs in 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 like uh, in, in a bigger apparatus. Mm -hmm. um, I do not speak, or I try to avoid the term perpetrator in volume because. Uh, I think it is misleading. It comes out of a juridical context. Uh, um, courts have not usually been very successful in analyzing and punishing uh, mass, mass violence. Mass violence is the crime with which you usually get away. Uh, and so uh, scholars from other disciplines should, uh, discipline should be careful to uh, pick up terms from there, uh, and the idea of the persecutor seems to um, seems to suggest that there is a certain uh, circle of persons that can be clearly defined uh, who were kind of set apart of the rest of society and who can be identified as the responsible persons uh, who have done this and who are responsible for this. I think responsibility is uh, more broadly um, distributed through society and uh, there may be persons who uh, were uh, quite, uh, who bore quite a bit of responsibility for the death of uh, groups or certain persons although nobody would address them as persecutors, such as in the Bangladeshi case or in the Armenian case, people who uh, uh, charged enormous amounts of money for uh, transporting people, giving them water or whatever, uh, that is not murder, uh, but it, can, uh, it did contribute to the death of many people. And it was a kind of, yeah, well, an act that uh, was kind of reflected by the person it, uh, that, that carried it out. So, um, persecutor, uh, I, I try to replay to talk of persecutors. That's a broader, uh, rather loosely defined term instead of uh, perpetrators. Um, and for the bystanders, I think. I think that this term is also a bit unfortunate. We are uh, discussing the terms for, shaped mainly by Raul Hilberg, 
or popularized by Raoul Hilberg in his uh, 1992 book about uh, the uh, persecution and murder of European uh, Jews. Um, bystander seems to suggest more of a passive role than I would um, see in many people's affected. So that's bystander is a very vague concept for a very diverse and large group of historical actors. You, you mentioned Bangladesh or, or East Pakistan. Uh, and inherent in that question about what to call it is, 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 I guess, your concern about the kind of traditional explanations of what happens there. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how people have traditionally uh, portrayed or, or, or narrated uh, what happens in, in that region in the early 1970s, and then say something about how your discussion about that fits into your broader argument. Right. Um, okay, we are talking about uh, East Pakistan, rather, uh, in 1971, uh, out of which, uh, because of the civil war, uh, the state of Bangladesh evolved in the end of 1971. Um, the uh, prevailing narrative Today is the, the Pakistani uh, government through the gov uh, Pakistani military um, um, conducted a genocide, carried out genocide against the East Pakistani population in order to crush the autonomy movement in that area and especially in order to weaken the Hindu element as uh, perceived as um, agents of a foreign and uh, enemy power, India, uh, as well as of a bad uh, cultural uh, influence. Um, and in the course of this, um, many people say between one and three million uh, and that's the Bangladeshi national narrative that three million people were killed. Um, what uh, I end up with in my analysis is that the number of people directly killed was probably uh, reaching 500,000 or less. Um, and that many uh, um, many deaths, uh, there were indeed, um, was all this, there were uh, killings by the uh, Pakistani military uh, through uh, use of uh, heavy weaponry uh, against civilians and civilian neighborhoods, uh, bombing, artillery, and so on. Uh, there were mass arrests and uh, killings. Uh, there were some kind of improvised killing centers. There were um, people cooperating, civilians cooperating with um, uh, with the Pakistani military and militia-like organizations who also were responsible for many murders, torture, uh, rape, and so on. Uh, but um, the number of victims overall was obviously, fortunately, much lower uh, than the Bangladeshi national narrative, and uh, with it also some genocide scholars 
see it. Um, and most of these people did not die of direct violence. They died because of hunger, disease, undersupply, exhaustion, and so on. Um, and many of them can be uh, found uh, uh, among the 10 million people who left uh, the country for India as refugees and then later returned in early 1932. Also, many of these people actually died after the end of the official conflict that was in mid-December 1971, when uh, the Indian Army, together with uh, Bangladeshi uh, independence fighters, uh, overwhelmed Pakistani military in Pakistan. Um, so, um, what one sees there is uh, that um, there is a lot of violence that's actually not coming from state actors. There's a lot of indirect violence, and there is uh, there are important social, socio-economic processes involved um, that um, actually caused, in this case, many of the killings. Uh, true. Uh, people had been driven out of the country, about 10 million of them, uh, and uh, later they could return. Also, up to 15 million people may have been displaced within the countries. These predom you know, predominantly uh, Muslim, the other, uh, the uh, for, uh, refugees in India, predominantly uh, belonging to the Hindu minority in this Pakistan. Uh, but um, the fact that these uh, that among these people many died and especially little children uh, families affected um, had to do with the fact that their property had been uh, yeah not only looted but often dismantled uh, by neighbors uh, and they had been driven out of their villages in the first place often not by the Pakistani army but by gangs, uh, mobs from neighboring uh, villages. Um, and so one sees that, uh, again, there is, a, uh, there is a conflictual society in which also non-state actors uh, took action. Oops. Um, and also, um, one sees that there are where conflicts that are not even on the radar screen of uh, scholars of political violence uh, that uh, became involved uh, with this, uh, like the struggle for land uh, and the resulting famine. So there was a disconnect between famine researchers and uh, scholars of political violence or genocide scholars. They didn't notice each other, so the famine scholars didn't find out that many of their victims of the famine that is somewhat contested, but I think that has been proved for 1972, were in fact Hindus, uh, and the genocide scholars uh, did not look at the demographic statistics that uh, famine researchers um, had for 1971-72, and uh, therefore did not uh, come up with uh, figures in the, 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 the like uh, victim numbers in the right language. Add to this that there was also a lot of violence against um, 
an ethnic minority that was supporting the central Pakistani government, the so-called Biharis, uh, non-Bengali Muslims in East Pakistan, uh, and that uh, this was uh, not, as is often perceived, primarily at the end of the conflict when the uh, independence fighters had prevailed, but in the beginning of the conflict in the spring of 1971. Um, and as for the infamous uh, mass rapes in East Pakistan, it came up that uh, they were not only conducted by uh, Pakistani military and the militias that sided with them, but also by locals, sometimes by family members, and also by the pro-Bangladesh, uh, by some of the pro-Bangladesh guerrillas who uh, came in victoriously in December 1971. Uh, so we have a conflictual society in which a lot of, and that's key for my analysis, social mobility takes place. Out of a struggle between elites, in this case, like pro-Pakistan versus pro-Bangladesh, elites are the, the ones rather uh, wedded to uh, land ownership and religion and to the central government. The others uh, kind of uh, parts, large parts of the middle class in uh, East Pakistan out of this struggle, there came about a broader, not only regime crisis, but crisis of society. And in that crisis of society, uh, there was like, uh, there were consequences for elites, but also for broader parts of the population. Among other things, uh, one of the so-called middlemen minorities, or two of them were um, heavily affected by violence, that is Hindus, uh, as usual with middlemen minorities, not all of the people were uh, like uh, wealthy and in a certain social position, there were many poor fishermen and uh, craftsmen and other people among them, but uh, there was also an important uh, like residual uh, elite uh, among them and these uh, their interests were damaged, their wealth was in part taken. Uh, and the same can be said about uh, the Biharis and also pro-Bangladesh uh, civil servants like were a representative within East Pakistan. Uh, and another uh, elite could rise in this process, uh, in this violent process. And then there are important, um, uh, there were important uh, processes on uh, among the lower strata of society, a struggle for land in which certain uh, groups, families uh, got uh, their interests got damaged and they got uh, pushed further into poverty. Uh, and that created the so-called uh, international basket case of development policies of the 1970s and 80s. Um, basket case uh, is a term by Henry Kissinger. Um, who that uh, had to do with uh, um, broad uh, poverty and uh, high incidence of uh, famine. There was another one in 1974-75 that was also connected indirectly with the events of 1971. So, genocide studies and the extremely violent societies approach come here to 
very different, I would say, to contrast sites. And the picture that uh, one gets with the glance at an extremely violent society, at participatory violence and multiple victim groups is much more complex than um, what was there if one used other concepts. Yeah, let me let, let me pick up on that um, because so far, uh, and, and so far in your book, you, you you've chosen case studies from what, by and large, might be part of the canon of genocide studies, if there is such a thing. Uh, and then there's a just this fantastic chapter in there about anti-insurgency uh, strategies and and conflicts. Um, and as I read it, you suggest that there's kind of a common strategy that emerges it has to do with um, rounding up civilians, uh, putting them in uh, villages or settlements that the military or the government or whoever thinks can be easily defended, and then essentially declaring everything else a free fire zone. Uh, Americans might be familiar with this because of the strategic Hamlet program. Um, for, so I guess a two-part question how does how does this anti-insurgency chapter fit in to this broader claim? And then how does this kind of remarkable commonality of approaches emerge? Yes, uh, to pick up on the latter question, yeah, there are even some links uh, that one can uh, identify like uh, manuals, military manuals that were translated for, translated from one uh, language into the other, like from English into Portuguese, let's say, uh, or uh, military observers, military instructors being sent uh, from certain countries into other countries. Uh, but I found that basically the approaches in question to deal with uh, insurgencies, and especially insurgencies in the countryside, were developed in each case uh, on the spot very much in uh, like medium to um, lower general rank of military, um, um, like um, strata levels. Uh, and also uh, like uh, like provincial civil servants and so on, and then later generalized for uh, certain countries. So there is no international of uh, steering all this, uh, and uh, the international lessons uh, that uh, or the international parallels did not um, did not mean that uh, um, countries basically. Uh, took up a theoretical model, read about it, and then applied it at home. It was rather developed each time, new with uh, some variations in the different countries. Now, um, what I'm talking about in this chapter is, as you know, that's about 20 countries uh, mm -hmm. in, across much of the 20th century. Uh, this is about uh, um, displacement of 25 to 30 million people and the death of at least 4 million in the process uh, the most uh, uh, lethal cases were uh, South Vietnam uh, with uh, the US involvement 
uh, Algeria, the Algerian War of Independence and the French uh, uh, policies of trying to suppress, uh, when trying to suppress it, and uh, the Germans parts of the occupied Soviet Union. In this uh, now, uh, what this has to do uh, in like um, some mass um, um, resettlements of rural population. Uh, and importantly, also the um, attempt to offer them something that today one would call development, uh, combined with creating militias among uh, this rural population, um, has uh, much to do with the general arguments of the book. Um, in, my, uh, in my book, I try to argue that a lot of 20th century mass violence had to do with a violent transformation of the countryside. Uh, in this case, there were insurgency because there were already processes in marginal areas of countries reaching from Guatemala to South Vietnam, um, Algeria, uh, and, uh, Portuguese, Angola, Mozambique, and elsewhere on the planet, uh, British Kenya, underway that um, created strong social mobility among um, rural subjects, peoples in the countryside, people in the countryside, and also conflicts among them. And then uh, this led to an insurgency by one group uh, or several smaller groups in the first place. Uh, but the Policies to repress the insurgency basically usually uh, was based on the idea of something like of, of some social engineering, like steering this process and making it productive uh, for either the colonial power or the national government in place to make these areas more productive, to integrate them into the nation or into an empire, uh, and not only to bring the military uh, under control, but also to bring about social and economic change in a way that is was compatible with the interests of uh, those in power. Um, however, this process went out of control in each case. Uh, it's very well known uh, if, one, if I may take the cases where the United States were involved more mm -hmm. directly, South Vietnam and El Salvador, uh, by the way, Iraq and Afghanistan, though not uh, fitting in every respect in this case study and not treated there, are similar um, in that uh, where the United States get involved, there is millions of refugees and displaced people. And then like in El Salvador, one third of the population in South Vietnam, uh, maybe 40 to 50 percent, uh, and in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, also millions. And then it is impossible uh, to repair the damages to a society that are created by this, or to bring, and that's another matter, social change under control. So social change uh, then uh, works out uh, like um, uncontrolled, anarchically, somewhat chaotically, but still according to certain patterns. 
So uh, one is that if uh, regime somewhat prevails, the people in the militias uh, can rise uh, uh, socially and in part also economically. Um, certain people are damaged. Um, the attempt to draw people in kind of a modern lifestyle, like in Algeria, there were even uh, there were attempts to uh, get have men get rid of their beards that look Muslim and uh, women get rid of their headscarves. Uh, were only um, successful to a certain extent. It could lead, like some argue, for Algeria or Kenya to the emergence of actually a national consciousness in uh, displacement camps. Uh, but uh, in many ways also there was a continuing conflict or on, uh, between modern and traditional lifestyles and uh, in part um, the um, um, like um, some traditional elements remain. The violence in all this uh, is mainly not taking part between the armed formations. Although there are many drawn into militias, usually the power holders have much more power. Uh, they actually are aiming at some kind of a supremacy of 10 to 1 in terms of manpower over the insurgents. Uh, that is considered to be, you know, sustainable then in order to stamp out an insurgency. But the main victims are civilians, uh, and they, uh, in many cases, like in East Timor, like probably in Guatemala even, like in British Kenya, like in French Algeria, um, and um, possibly also in South Vietnam, but it's not very well researched, and in many other cases, these people were civilians that were indirectly falling victims, victim to all this process. They were refugees who did, did not have enough to eat or did not have shelter. Uh, there were people who were uh, stripped of their social networks and uh, left without livelihood. Um, yes, and so they fell victim to this broader process of an attempt of social engineering and its uncontrolled outcomes. If one looks at this purely from a genocide studies point of view, or of the, of, with the, with the, um, through the political violence class, one will usually focus on military or paramilitary and direct killing. And so, actually. The real issue in these cases, in terms of victim numbers, is largely left out. And therefore, it's important to look um, and not only, only at uh, social engineering, planning, and military action, but also at uh, a wide variety of actions of a diverse, uh, diverse groups of historical actors in these processes. This is what I try, of course, very superficially on whatever what is this 80 pages about 20 countries. <laughs> um, you conclude the book uh, with a series of speculations or, or perhaps tentative conclusions 
we don't have time to explore all of them. I just want to, and, and I should say, I, I encourage listeners to pick up the book and read them because I think they're, they're really interesting and thought-provoking. But I want to pick up on the, the one point you mentioned about societies in transitions because that's what I see kind of pervading the book is this argument that it is the dramatic social and economic and cultural transitions in these societies which create uh, the conditions or the preconditions for mass violence and which then feeds back into the transition into kind of a, 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 a loop to create societies which experience violence not just over a year or two but for years or decades. Um, what, what does that say about there, there, there have been people who have suggested that genocide is typical or, or mass violence is typical of a particular point in the social or process of social or state development. Um, does that make sense given your approach? Yes, but uh, only regarding victims. And also, if one would say, well, you know, if societies are beyond, uh, have, have socioeconomically developed uh, over a certain point, then they are more secure uh, for violence, then uh, this leaves out the problem that uh, there are large parts of this planet that uh, seem to have difficulties uh, to become an industrial society that would be more secure. Uh, but um, this is only true for victims. I, uh, in the book, try to argue that much of 20th century mass violence has taken place in the countryside or in rural areas and small towns uh, and that this is where the victims are. But if we look at uh, cases like South Vietnam, uh, a whole lot of Nazi violence, for example, also in the Second World War, this was uh, the much of the violence came from industrial countries. Uh, these were cases of imperialist violence where indeed victims, uh, as for the Nazi case, were mostly located in predominantly rural uh, or somewhat rural areas um, uh, in Eastern Europe and in non-industrial area, areas where industries didn't play, play a large role, where societies were uh, organized in certain ways. But um, that uh, does not mean that um, large parts of the persecutors actually came from industrial societies. Uh, so industrial societies may have less of a threat of violence against people in their ranks within their borders, but industrial society or a society of having achieved to accomplish a certain wealth does not mean that it does not pose a threat uh, to actually conduct mass violence in other parts of the world. And the same would be, could be argued for uh, France in Algeria in the 1950s or for Britain in Kenya in the 1950s. So in that sense, uh, yeah, it is only in part comforting uh, that uh, industrial society, people in industrial societies are less prone to become victims of uh, mass violence. Um, yes, and uh, 
Another important, I think, argument of the book is that poverty per se does not lead uh, to a high incidence of mass violence. Rather, it is uh, social mobility, and especially uh, that means sudden impoverishment of poor many people, and also the uh, steep uh, sudden rise for certain groups at the same time uh, at their costs or in, part in, in, in the course of the same process that uh, plays out uh, in the way that uh, mass violence is uh, generated. Was that kind of an answer? Yeah, it was wonderful. I, we've taken up a lot of your, a lot of your time, uh, and I just want to end with actually just one question, uh, and it's kind of a traditional question. What are you working on now? Um, I'm working on a brief synthesis about uh, persecution and murder of European Jews in the 1930s and 40s, trying to apply some of the ideas uh, or some elements of the concept of extremely violent societies through that process and uh, uh, trying to come to some perhaps uh, supplementary additional results uh, as compared to what, what is there so far. Well, I, that sounds wonderful. I look forward to reading it. Uh, I learned a lot from this book, and I'm sure I'll learn a lot from the next. So I want to thank you so much for your time uh, and for being willing to be with us on New Books and Genocide Studies. Uh, and hopefully after you're done with the next book, you'll be back. So thank you very much, Christian. Thank you. Take care. You've been listening to an interview with Christian Garlick, author of the book Extremely Violent Societies, Mass Violence in the 20th Century World. I hope you enjoyed the interview and that you'll return to listen to more interviews on the New Books and Genocide Studies podcast, part of the New Books Network.